We have a very special day granted to us by God's grace to come together with the saints to worship in song and in word this morning. And I am, for one, thankful for each one of you here who are ready to do that and have been participating in that. And I want you to prepare your hearts now and prepare your prayers for Nathan as he comes to deliver God's word to us from the book of James. Pray for him as he's an encouragement to me. He feeds me once a month very well, and I thank him for that. And I know that he would would definitely appreciate your prayers and, and eagerness this morning as he comes to deliver the word from James. Nate? morning. Yet again, it's good to be here um, with you guys. As Randy just mentioned, um, I need your prayers. No, he needs them. And I speak for both of us. We covet. One thing we do covet, we covet your prayers. And we do. Um, And I thank you. I know Randy thanks you for that as well. If you would turn with me, um, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for speaking to us through your word. I pray, God, this morning that you would do that, Father, that you would speak to us today through your word, and you would do it, Father, first for your glory and then for our good. Lord, I I need to hear from you this morning, Father. We need to hear from you this morning, Lord. We love you and we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Text this morning, be James chapter 1, specifically verses 13 through 17. However, I want to start reading um, in verse 2, and we'll go 2 through 17, just so we keep in mind the context of uh, what we've been studying in James these past few months. Starting in verse 2, James chapter 1. <clears throat> it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life with the crown of life which the Lord has promised 
to those who love him. Starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We must be reminded this morning that the context of these these verses that we just read is in the context of, of trials, right? Various trials, and we've we've considered that over the past, I think, three or four months as we've been as we've been looking at James. And so today's text and what James is going to address today naturally flows out of that context, out of the context of trials, specifically temptation through trials. Now, now what we uh, consider today concerning temptation, specifically in this context, of course, is, is dealing directly with trials. However, but it will be, you know, true concerning all temptation or any temptation in the life of um, believers. I want to, to start by giving you just a brief outline of what we're going to, to look at today in, in these few verses. Verses 13 and 14, we're going to consider the root of temptation. The root of temptation. And verse 15, we'll consider the result of temptation, more specifically, the result when we yield as believers, we yield to temptation. Then in verse 17, the rescue from temptation. So, the root of temptation, the result of temptation, and the rescue from temptation. Starting in verse 14, 13, James says, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James gives us an imperative right off the bat here. Let no one say. This is a command. Do not say this. Never say this. Never say, I am being tempted by God. Never accuse God of attempting you. Now, now by tempt, make sure we understand, by tempting, he's, he's referring to the enticement to sin. At times in the New Testament, the, the word for tempt, the word for trial is the same word, but in this context, James is talking about the enticing to sin. Never accuse God of enticing you to sin. To do so, if we did so, would be to violate this biblical command right here in James, and, and the act of doing that itself would be would be sin. Never accuse, never accuse God of tempting you to sin. He says, because God cannot be tempted by evil. So one of the things that God can't do, and there are things that God can't do, right? There are. One of the things that God can't do is God cannot act contrary 
to his nature. Can't do it. God can't act contrary to his nature. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke uh, 18, verse 19. Luke 18, 19. Recall the, the rich, young ruler here. In 1819, right, it says, uh, we'll start in 18. Uh, a ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, he's talking to Jesus here, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is good. And God cannot act in a way that is contrary to his good nature. Isaiah 5.16. I know you know these things, but it's important to be reminded, I think, of God's nature, especially in this, this context. Isaiah 5.16. So it says, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy and righteousness. God is holy. God is righteous. God cannot act in a manner that is contrary to his holiness and his righteousness. See, God and evil. And by evil, I think we could substitute sin, right? Sin is evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by sin. God cannot be tempted to Sin, be completely against his nature. I mean, think about it. If God could be tempted by evil, if he could be tempted to sin by the very fact that he could be tempted, he would cease to be good. He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be righteous. In fact, he would cease to be God. God cannot sin cannot be tempted to sin. You know, I was thinking about this. God is sovereign, right? He is. He is the sovereign one. We are not. We have no sovereignty, no control over really anything. We like to think we do, right? But God is the sovereign one. If he could be tempted, if he could be controlled, if he could be manipulated, And he would cease to be God because he would cease to be sovereign. It says, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Period. Now, what James is talking about here, he's, he's referring to not just direct temptation by God, that God is not going to directly uh, uh, attempt or directly try to tempt you. But he's also talking, and more specifically, in the context of James, in the context of these various trials that we've all been through, that we'll all go through, right? In the context of these trials, God won't even indirectly, not even in the minutest amount, will even indirectly tempt you. And we were to understand that trials are a part of God's life, uh, a part of God's will for our life, right? And we, we looked at that several 
months ago at the first part of James, starting in chapter two, or starting in verse two, right? The trials are a part of God's will for our life. And it's not that God just simply sits back and says, you know, well, hey, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. You know, we'll just, we'll just let that go and whatever trials come in their lives, they come in their lives. And I'm not really active in that. No, God is active as believers. He is active in our lives, right? Directly willing, controlling, dictating things that are happening in our lives, including those trials. And they are a part of God's will for our life. Let's consider for a, a moment the example of, of Joseph, right? Joseph, Genesis chapter 37 all the way through at the end of 50, right? His brothers, if you recall, what did they do? They wanted to kill him, right? Threw him down a well, sold him to some what? Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites did what? Took him to Egypt. He winds up serving in Potiphar's house, right? Now he's accused by Potiphar's wife of of, of sexual impropriety, okay? And then they do what to Joseph, right? Bad stuff, trial, keeps coming, right? They take Joseph and then they throw him into jail, right? And then from jail, what happens? Winds up serving Pharaoh. Winds up the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, right? When it's all over, God does what? We see the big picture of, of Joseph's trials that God used all of that stuff that happened to Joseph for the physical salvation of national Israel. God was willing, directly involved, sovereign over all of those trials that Joseph encountered. And what was Joseph's, uh, Joseph's response to his brothers? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 50, starting in 15. Jacob had, I believe, just passed away. His brothers were fearful of him and his response to them. And here's, here's Joseph's ultimate response to them. Genesis 50. Starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message, a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, here it is, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. What you meant for evil, what God meant for good. Everything that happened in Joseph's life up to that point, all those trials, jail, spending time at the bottom of a well, right, whatever, was clearly ordained 
and orchestrated by God. I'm not saying that the sin that was committed against Joseph, right? We know that God doesn't what? God doesn't will sin. He doesn't ordain. That doesn't make people to sin. But yet, the results of those actions completely and totally willed, directed, orchestrated under the sovereignty of God. In the New Testament, we consider Paul. 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 7 through 10. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, this was given to Paul by God. Okay. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's thorn, we don't know exactly what it was, right? What we do know is that it was given, right? A trial, something given by God to Paul for what? For one, God's glory and two, for Paul's good. So trials, right? Given to us by God, tests, tests our faith, given to us by God for his glory and for our good. But But in those trials, God never directly or indirectly tempts us. Though he allows us to be tempted, and we understand that, and his allowance of that and the temptations that we we go through are under his sovereignty, he never tempts us. But here's the faulty thinking in all of this, and this is why James addresses it. Here's the thinking. So God gave me a trial. Maybe this trial I'm going through right now is is clearly from God. For his good, right? I mean, for his glory, for my good. Yet, as a result of this trial, maybe I've been tempted to sin. Maybe I've been tempted to to complain. To have an attitude that that is wrong, that's, that's sinful, unbiblical. And you know what? I gave in to that temptation. I didn't. I, I sinned. Maybe I sinned as a result now of that temptation. And so here's my, here's my thinking. I mean, not, but this is the problem, and this is what James is addressing. The thinking then can be this. Well, God gave the trial, right? The trial resulted in the temptation. I mean, I never would have been tempted if I was never in this trial. And because I was tempted and because I'm, I'm weak in my flesh, I, I gave in to that temptation and I, I sinned. 
So ultimately, in a way, what? God is kind of responsible for that sin because we went from trial from God to temptation from trial to sin from temptation. Do you see that thinking there? Does, it, does that make sense? And this is what James is putting a stop to. Trial from God, yes. For his glory, for your good, yes. Temptation from trial, not from God. Not even indirectly. Now you might ask, what about Abraham? And I, just, I, I do want to throw this out. Depending on your version, okay? Genesis 22.1, we don't have to look there unless you want to. Genesis 22.1, I think the King James says, God um, tempted Abraham, okay? Yes, no, he did not entice Abraham to sin. So someone might throw out, well, what about the temptation by Abraham? No, God tested Abraham's faith, but God did not tempt, right? Did not entice Abraham to sin. God does not tempt, cannot tempt, again, because it would be contrary to his nature. So sub-point number one, sub-point number one, under the main point, the root of temptation, put this, the root of temptation is not God. The root of temptation is not God. James 1.14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and he is enticed by his own lust. But each one, everyone, that's us. Everyone is tempted. Each one of you, me, is tempted when you are carried away and enticed by your own lust. To be carried away embodies this idea of being seduced by a harlot. Strong imagery here that he's using, right? To be enticed has the idea of being baited like a hunter would bait a deer. But each one of you, you, me, is tempted when we're carried away and enticed by our own lust, right? Lust, desire for that which is forbidden. See, James just told us that God is not even indirectly, no way, directly or indirectly, responsible for our temptation. But here he tells us that we are directly responsible for our temptation. This is sub point number two under the first, the root of temptation, right? The root of temptation, it's man. It's me. It's you. It's us. We are the source of our own temptation. We are tempting ourselves to sin. This is what James is telling us here. The Bible knowledge commentary explains that man not only builds, but baits his own trap. And I'm going to add, he just jumps right in. And that's what we usually do, right? We build it, we bait it, and then we just jump right in. 
This makes sense, doesn't it? When we, when we consider the nature of man. Right? Turn with me to Jeremiah 17.9. We're going to look at a couple different verses here. Just remind ourselves of the nature that we are born with. And even as believers, the nature that we, to a degree, right, we still have. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? our heart tempting us to sin lying deceiving right pulling at us mark 7 21 through Mark seven twenty one. For from within, this is Jesus speaking here. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile, and defile the man. So out of men, out of us, comes sin. Out of us comes the temptation to sin. Romans chapter 7. Eighteen through twenty-five. Every time I, I read this passage, I, I I think Paul was writing this for me, it's as though I am saying it, feeling it, owning it myself. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully occur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, 
the law of sin. The struggle that Paul talks about, right? This inner struggle. I mean, I think, I think as believers, if you are a believer, right, you can relate. I hope you can relate. I can relate with what Paul was saying there. I think that's me. I think he's talking about my thoughts on this very matter. You see, it's us. You see, even as regenerate, repentant followers of Christ, right? We still have we still have the flesh, don't we? We still have our sin nature. That propensity is still there. But Romans six twenty two, right? But what? We are no longer as believers, slaves to sin, right? But we have been set free from it and now slaves of Christ. So man, us, me, you, my sin, right? The root of my temptation. I want to make a couple observations. First one is this. Temptation itself is not sin. It is an enticement to sin. I believe that temptation flows out of sin because it is our sin in us, tempting us to sin, that nature that we have, okay? But the act of being tempted itself is itself not sin. So the source of sin is man's heart. Since temptation leads to sin, then the source of temptation is man's heart. Second observation I want to make. You don't need Satan or any of his demons to be tempted to sin. In fact, James doesn't even mention it. What does he say? He says it's not God, right? God doesn't tempt. He says it's you. Completely silent on the devil's role in any of this. Because it's not God. He says it's you. But it seems like believers, believers often want to think that their temptation is in some way from Satan. I believe in a, in a way that's it's it's a uh, um, it's a way to blame shift, right? I'm suffering with all this this temptation. Maybe this this uh, maybe it's it's addiction to something. Okay, and man, it's 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 Satan, right? He's he's coming down on me hard, and you know I I'm trying, but if if I give into it, at least maybe I can then kind of oh well, Satan kind of you know he just got me on that one, right? That that's blame shifting, okay? Also believe that 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 it's done. To maybe puff ourselves up a little bit, you know, maybe think that we're a little bit more spiritual than we are, right? I work with a with a gentleman who who's, who's kind of like that, right? Everything's a demonic attack because I'm so spiritual, you see, because I'm so spiritual, you know, Satan's coming after me, right? Tempting me. No, you are the source of your temptation. Now. I say that I'm not discounting demonic spiritual warfare, okay? It is, it is real, okay? But being tempted, and this isn't a 100% positive statement, but for the most part, right, being tempted is not demonic spiritual warfare, right? Now, if maybe, right, 
Satan physically, spiritually is in your presence like he was in the garden, right? Or as he was in the wilderness with Christ, okay? Then maybe I would give that one to you and say, yes, Satan was, was actually there tempting you, okay? But in your mind, when you're driving down the road and you're tempted by something, it's not demonic, spiritual warfare. It's you. Heard people talk about those though, right? The, the demon of depression. Have you heard? I don't know. Maybe maybe it's from our background, but the demon of depression. Or that person's struggling with a, a demon of fear, a demon of addiction, right? Here's the thing. For believers, for believers, there are no demons of depression, okay? There are no demons of fear, demons of anxiety, demons of addiction, demons of whatever. We'll just sum that up and say, for believers, there are no demons of sin, right? Because all those things are sin, okay? You see, here's the thing. If you are a believer, you are what? You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, no other demonic spirit has any ability to control, possess, manipulate, your mind, your thoughts, your heart. Okay. So if, if a person truly has a, a demon of addiction, that person's not a believer. That person is an unbeliever. Okay, An unbeliever who very well might be possessed. And I'm not going to get into all that this morning. I'm just saying when you hear people who profess to be believers that say they're struggling with a demon of whatever, they're not if they're a believer. And if they truly are struggling with that, then they're not a believer. Romans, um, Romans 8, 9 through 17. Remind ourselves of the indwelling that as believers we have. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Let me tell you, if you are being led by the Spirit of God, you are not being led by some demonic depression, whatever sin you want to throw out there. For you have not yet received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, it might seem kind of harsh. 
Okay. And, and I'll be honest, haven't heard anyone in here talk about demons of depression or demons of, of addiction or, or, or trying to blame shift their sin on demonic temptation. Okay. But I don't know everyone's thoughts. Okay. I don't know, know where you are on this, but I know that, that believers, genuine believers have these misconceptions. Uh, a friend, um, of mine from our old church, no longer in, in, in Oklahoma. They've, they've since moved, um, away. But I remember one time he came to me over this very subject and he was struggling with a temptation. Now, I don't remember what the temptation was. And if I did, I, I wouldn't share that with you. But nonetheless, he was struggling with a certain temptation. And, and he came to me and he's like, how do I battle this temptation? Right? I mean, like, cause Satan's tempting me, right? So he's making a false assumption right off the bat. Satan's tempting me, right? And so, so when I go to refute Satan, do I have to like, is it just in my mind, right? Satan, get behind me, but I don't say it. Or do I actually audibly have to say it because so he can hear me and the demons can hear me. And, and, and what do I do basically to shut him down? You know, maybe let's, let's assume, for example, it's lust, right? Pretty girls walking by, I see her in my mind. I'm tempted to look at her, to lust. And so do I, do I, what do I do? How do I shut Satan down on that? Do I just, do I say it out loud? Do I say it in my mind? Do I, do I throw scripture at him? I'm like, wait a minute, stop, 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 stop. Let's go back to the beginning. Satan is not, he's not tempting you, right? Satan doesn't know your mind. You guys know that, right? Satan can't read your thoughts, okay? He's not omniscient. He does not know what you think cannot know what you think. Now, I believe that he can observe our actions. His agents can observe our actions and can know by our actions, right? Can know by what we say, right? Can know what's in here, right? Because we know that, right? Out of the, out of the mouth, abundance of the heart, or the, out of the heart. Anyway, I probably did that backwards, but you understand what I'm saying, right? That which is in our heart comes out of our mouth, right? So Satan can see that and can know that, but he doesn't know what's in here. So when you're tempted in here, it's not because he's doing it, okay? It's because you're doing it. It's not him. It's us. Sub point number three, I guess under that first main point, the root of temptation. Okay? The root of temptation, it's not Satan. The root of temptation is not Satan. Maybe that'd be a better sub point too, but it didn't work in the order. So we'll just call it sub point number three, right? The big one is this. The root of temptation is us. Remember that if you remember anything. That we, we, me, you, we are the root of our own temptation. Verse 15. James chapter 1. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When this desire, right, lust, lust is again the desire for that which is forbidden. When this desire for that which is forbidden is yielded to, right, when you give in to the lusts of your heart, when you succumb to temptation, you what? You sin. It's sin, right? Sin. It's missing the mark of God's standard, his perfect standard. And it's missing it because what? You aimed and you shot and you hit a different target. 
the fruit of lust, fruit of desire, is sin. So this is main point number two in this text, verse 15 here. Okay? The result of, we'll say the result of yielding to temptation is sin. Continues in verse 15. And when sin is accomplished, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the end result of sin is what? The end result of sin is death. If the fruit of lust is sin, then the fruit of sin is death. Turn to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, verse 17. God, speaking in the garden to Adam, and he says, The Lord God commanded, actually we'll start in 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but... But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat... For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. For Adam to have eaten from it would be sin. So what God is telling him, right? It's missing the mark of God's standard. God's standard is not eating from it. But if you miss that mark intentionally, willfully, and you eat from it, in that day you will surely die. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. In the moment that Adam and Eve, right, sinned, in the moment that they sinned, they experienced immediate spiritual death, right? Immediate spiritual death, separated from God. Spiritually dead. Their entire being completely, in that instant, corrupted by sin, incapable now of pleasing God. Also in that instant that they sinned, right? The process of physical death began. So death, spiritual, physical, right? Result of sin. Romans Again, talking about Adam here. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and we're just supporting what James is talking about here, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. One chapter over, Romans 6, 21 through 23. 
Therefore, what benefit were you than deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things, what are those things? Sin. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, but now you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, James, he takes the accusation that somehow, even indirectly, even just if it's just, just minute in the smallest form, he takes this, this, this accusation that somehow God is responsible for temptation and he totally turns it around on us and he sticks it to us, okay? So here we are, not just responsible for our own temptation, but for our own sin, for our own death. That is the, the physical death that all of us will someday go through and the spiritual death that we were born in and for those who are not believers, the spiritual death that they will endure eternally. It's your fault. It's your responsibility, James says. You see, people want to blame God for not saving everyone. Right? People want to blame God for not saving everyone. Now, you know that God is not responsible to save anyone. The fact that he saves anyone is purely astounding. And here, James, James puts the blame squarely on us. You're responsible for your own temptation. You're responsible for your own sin. You're responsible for your own death. God's not responsible at all. The fact that he saved you, the fact that he saves anyone, is purely amazing. It's astounding. Verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Deceived about what? <laughs> that somehow you're not responsible. That's what he's saying. He's reminding you, don't be deceived about these things. What I've just told you is true. Don't be deceived in thinking somehow God is responsible for your temptation and your sin. Somehow Satan might be responsible for your temptation and sin, right? You're responsible. You're responsible for it, for your sin, for the temptation from your sin, right? You're responsible for the wrath of God that you deserve. As I was studying this, I was thinking to myself, I mean, this is pretty this is pretty heavy, right? I mean, he's laying it on thick, and he's laying it on thick here. I mean, he's talking to believers, right? And he's laying it on thick, and I think it's I think it's good, I think it's necessary. I think the reminder is important. But he doesn't just leave us there. Doesn't just leave us hanging. Man, that's heavy, right? No. He reminds us, verse 17, that there is a rescue. There is a rescue from temptation. There is a rescue from sin. There is a rescue from death. James 1, 17. It says, every good thing given 
and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, the problem is with us, right? It is. The problem is with us. It's our sin problem. Our problem. The solution. The solution is with God. See, it's a reiteration of the fact here that God cannot be tempted by evil or tempt with evil because God is good. He is perfect and he is holy. So not only does God not tempt us with evil, right? Tempt us with sin, but God wants what is best for us. And what is best for us? Not sin. That's what he wants. That's what James is reminding us here. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. The most perfect gift as a believer, I can, I can imagine the most valuable thing in my life is my salvation. Really, it's not my salvation. It's God's salvation, right? He granted me that gift, that perfect gift, that gift, right, that has taken me out from under slavery to sin and placed me what? Now as a slave to Christ. So our response, right, our response then is to turn to the Father of lights. And and this is a Jewish title for God, the Creator. Our response is to turn to Him who is unchangeable. He says, right, there is no variation or shifting shadow. Our response is to turn to God who is unchangeable, who is solid, who is reliable, trustworthy. He is faithful to save, to keep, to restore. When you are tempted Turn to him, the father of lights. Turn to God who is faithful. Let's let's consider the promises. Consider the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is what? God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide what? The way of escape. So that you will be able to what? To endure it. Main point number three is this. The rescue the rescue from temptation is God. Earlier I said that temptation is not sin. Right? It's not sin. Right? However, there is a fine line between temptation and sin. I believe that this is because sin is not only an act of commission, right? Something that we actually have to do, Okay? Sin can be an act of what? Omission that can happen in an instant, right? Sin in the mind can be conceived and can be carried out in an instant. And so we know that temptation is not a sin, okay? We know that God is sovereign over temptation, that he allows us to be tempted. He allows us as believers to tempt ourselves. 
But we know in an instant we can go from temptation into sin. And that's why our response, our response is not get behind me, Satan, right? It's not. It's, it's get behind me, self, right? Our response when we are tempted is to immediately turn to God and to cry out to him for mercy, for grace, for rescue from that temptation to keep us from that sin. He is our only rescue. Second Peter 2, 1, verse 9a, but we're going to look at 1, um, sorry, Second Peter 2, 9, but we're going to look at 1 through 9. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord God, what? Then the Lord knows. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. God knows how to rescue us from temptation. So there is rescue. There is hope because there is rescue from temptation, a rescue from sin to keep us from sin. That rescue, the rescue is Christ. God, the son who knows the full weight of temptation, who knows, who knows the full weight of temptation more than we could ever experience it. And yet, And yet he could never sin or be tempted to sin. But yet he knows and he understands. And when we cry out to him for help, he will help. Turn with me to Hebrews 14. I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, 
our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in what the time of need. So not only is Christ our only rescue in time of temptation, but he's also our redemption when we fail. We cry out to him when we need him. God, keep me from this temptation. Keep me from this sin and and do it for your glory and for my good. And he's there and he's faithful. And he understands and he'll do it. And when we fail, when when we yield to those temptations, our temptations, when we we sin. Our response is to cry out to him in repentance. Father, forgive me. Restore me. Make me whole. Keep me. Let's pray. Jesus, you are... You are our rescue. You are our rescue as believers from temptation. Jesus, you are you are the only rescue, the only hope for humanity, the rescue from sin, the rescue from death. Lord, I pray that for anyone here who has yet to receive that rescue. Father, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, I I pray that you would grant them repentance. Grant them faith. Grant them rescue. Lord, for those of us who are believers, Father, I pray. I pray for rescue. Lord, we will be tempted. God, I would prefer to be kept from temptation. And I know that's not always your will. So Lord, I pray that when I find myself, when we find ourselves surrounded by temptation, I pray that you would, you would rescue us from those temptations, that you would enable us to endure, to stand firm. You would keep us from sin. And Lord, when we find ourselves when we find ourselves on the other side, Father, when we find ourselves having failed, yielded to temptation, yielded to sin, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the restoration and the redemption that we have in you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would bring us, even as believers, Father, that you would continue to grant us repentance. Lord, you would grant us repentance for your glory, Father. You would do it for our good and you would restore us, Father. We love you. We praise you and we thank you. Amen. We are.
we are celebrating 